Was there ever a point in your life where you hit rock bottom and you were honestly sick of yourself? On this episode of Another Chance, you're going to meet my good friend, John Fraterola. John was living with his girlfriend in Los Angeles trying to break into the Hollywood scene as a writer, and he was miserable, just as I prayed he would be. Now that I have your attention, I'm Brian Sussman, and this is my Another Chance podcast. This is episode two of the Another Chance podcast. It's entitled, Stop Praying for Me, I'm Miserable. (laughs) By the way, I invite you to follow me via social media. Best way to do that, just go to briansussman.com. Those who know me will testify, I've always been upfront with my faith. If you ask me how I tick, I'm going to tell you. And so it was with John Fraterola. And by the way, I really did pray that John would become miserable, as I'll explain. So this goes back a few years, actually more than a few years. We're just out of college. We're both working in Reno for KOLO TV Channel 8. We did have some similarities. John, Italian, me, Jewish, so we had the European ethnic thing that we could sort of identify with. John was from Philly. I went to high school in Chicago, so we're from big cities back east. John was in production in the television station, and I was in news. I was the weatherman. I was super, super career-driven, but so was John. John wasn't driven to make it in production and television. John wanted to make it in Hollywood. So we had the similarities, but the differences at that time were also very stark. I was married. John was single. John was loud and, from my perspective, a bit presumptuous. And he loved to party, and I wasn't really the party guy or the loud guy. Now, one of my personal mission statements throughout my career has always been to use my job as an opportunity to share my belief that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent his son in the form of Jesus to die a sacrificial death for our sins and then be raised from the dead as the glorified Savior and Messiah. So if you were willing to listen, I would share that. But honestly, sometimes if someone's not willing to listen, I'll share anyway, but only if I believe I've got the green light from God. And that's how it was with John. God really and truly put it on my heart to share boldly with him. And sometimes in the process, he could be a bit contentious and even antagonistic. Now, I know some of you might be saying, oh, yeah. I've met obnoxious Christian zealots like you, but I don't really think I was that guy. I mean, my college degree was all about effective communication via broadcast journalism. And I knew that any great communicator has to know his or her audience. So what did I know about John? Well, okay, he's Catholic. He probably knows a little bit about the gospel. He's, he's Italian. I can relate to that. He's from Philly. I think I can relate to that too. He likes music. I like music. We're both in TV. We both have aspirations. So I would relate to John on those levels, and when the opportunity came, I would take it. I spoke with John recently to see what he recalls, and as it turns out, he was curious about me. I I think it was in connection with the the industry that we were in, and being in news and weather, um, I was just puzzled because Coming from the production side, it was uh, pretty much party-hardy all the, all the time, and a good amount with the news guys as well. And so I, I, I didn't quite see 
how you fit into that, where you did a good job. I mean, you were good at what you did. Uh, people liked you, um, but you were kind of withdrawn. Um, you, you didn't participate fully. Well, I can understand why. A lot of the things um, you wouldn't want to participate in. Um, but it was more of that type of puzzlement um, than, than really your faith. And, and the way that you described me, I, I would look back, and, and, and you were just the opposite. Um, I mean, you were, you were buttoned down, you were clean cut, um, and so you seemed to be the opposite of what I was. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure uh, if it was puzzlement at all or just kind of curiosity, maybe. Ah, yes, and certainly we've all heard the old slogan, curiosity kills the cat. By the way, I have no idea where that saying comes from, but I can tell you this. There was a time when John's curiosity about me totally killed a moment that he thought for sure was going to end in brilliant comedy at my expense. The story began when I decided to go out with the guys for a quick bite and some drinks just after the 6 o'clock news. Uh, after the uh, early uh, newscast, you're right, we all went out to grab something to eat and have drinks, and it was cold, and I had a bad cold, and I was drinking uh, tea with uh, honey, lemon, and brandy, and everybody else were having their drinks, and you were drinking your Coke. Now, here's how I remember what happened next. This is Reno, a.k.a. the biggest little city in the world. That's their slogan. When I first started working in Reno, by the way, I recall telling the anchorman, this was an iconic Nevada guy named Tad Dunbar. I said, Tad, Reno is kind of like a little Las Vegas. And he said, no, sus, Reno's actually like a big Winnemucca. So all that said, in Las Vegas, the female food and, and beverage servers, they often wear really provocative uniforms. Some of you have seen this before with your own eyes. In Reno, they're not quite as daring, but they're still a bit brassy, shall we say. Anyway, I remember this young waitress, she's about my age, delivering a round of drinks to us. And she's dressed in her cute little outfit, and she slips me a note. And my first reaction is that she wanted the weatherman's autograph. So I quickly read the note. That's not what she wanted. And then I unassumingly placed the note into my shirt pocket. Problem is, John's watching all of this. A grin develops on his face. He is positive that I just got hit on by the cute little waitress. And now he's not going to give up. He wants to know what that note says. The waitress was approaching us. Uh, you were facing me, so the waitress was approaching uh, from behind you. And I saw her pause and writing on the napkin. So I didn't, I just saw that and I didn't understand what she was doing until she came around and set the next round of drinks. And then when she approached you to put your Coke down, she picked up that napkin and set it down with your drink. I don't, I remember you reading it and you reacting kind of, you know, just kind of quietly about it. And then maybe and putting it in my pocket. Yes, that's it. Yes. Yes. And then I said, come on, Brian. I said, let me see that note. You know, and I was, I was kind of, you know, goading you there because I thought, indeed, she was hitting on you. And you refused and you refused. And finally, I, you know, as I was bugging you enough, you just slipped me the note or handed me the note. And you're right. I was ready to read this out loud. And thankfully, I didn't. And I, I read it to myself. And it was like I just felt Everything, the comedy, the, everything that I was going to do just drain out of my body when I read her note and how blessed she was by you speaking and her, 
you know, her husband and her pray for you all the time. And I just folded the note, you know, you know, I'm sure I was red faced and, and just handed you the note back. I didn't say a word again after that. This is the kind of stuff John would pull on me all the time. As I mentioned, back then I was climbing the ladder of success. I always wanted my weathercast recorded and other segments recorded whenever I would do the news. One reason, I wanted to get better. And two, I really needed these things for my resume tape. Walk over to my desk and see that it's clear outside, 28 degrees, humidity 96%, winds are calm, barometric pressure is rising. High temperature in the U.S. Beeville, Texas. Tad, you ever heard of Beeville, Texas? A little north of there, okay. About 83 degrees, a good old Beeville. This morning's low was a minus 16 at Holton, Maine. Here's our current conditions right now. Oh, if only you could see my hair in this video. After all, it was the 80s. So anyway, I'm just about to do the weather one evening. And by the way, John wore several hats at this TV station on the production side. Uh, one of his jobs was to be the floor director. He was that guy that would stand in front of all the studio cameras and he'd look at the talent and say, okay, guys, 30 seconds, 30 seconds, 15 seconds, guys, 15 seconds, 10, 10. All right, Brian, here we go. Five, four, three. And then he'd point at you and you were on the air. That was his job. So I'm about to do the weather one evening and John is the floor director. And John remembers this epic moment well. And so... You know, I know you, you were rolling and recording, so it just popped in my mind. I said, hang on, Brian, your tie's crooked. And as you looked down to try to fix it, I said, hey, hang on, I'll get it. And as I stepped up, I grabbed hold of your knot and acted like I was adjusting it, but I moved it a little bit off center, just a bit under one, one side of your collar there, and then said, you know, okay, looks good. And we're coming out of the break, and you're ready to go on, and the uh, the uh, anchor man saw what I was doing. He was chuckling, and you went ahead and did a perfect newscast. I mean, flawless, no flubs or anything. And as soon as we went to the break, you took your mic off and ran inside to check your tape. And then I heard your voice yelling out from the in frustration and anger at me from the newsroom, Fratterola! And you came out and just looked at me, shook your head, and walked off. And everybody was laughing. So. Oh. Uh, and, and it wasn't time, planned. I just thought it would be funny. At the time, I was so angry. And, you know, that's, I just was mad. But looking back, it is one of the most hilarious things in all my many years of television. <laughs> in fact, I went home that night. I was really mad. My wife can verify that to this day. But despite such pranks, I liked John, and it was clear God wanted me to keep sharing about my faith with him. Yes, John believed God. He was a Catholic. He even believed in God's Messiah, Jesus. But he'd never surrendered his life to him. Well, it, it was clear um, that you were uh, trying to get me to understand uh, who Jesus Christ was. And, of course, I thought that I knew who Jesus Christ was. I understood it all intellectually. I didn't disagree with any of it. I think we need to pause for a moment at this point. Now, you might be Catholic, Jewish, Baptist, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, or nothing. We all want to believe that when we breathe our last breath, we're going to a good place, right? Now, for just a moment, think of us as being alone. No one's listening. It's just the two of us, okay? No judgment here. We're just together talking about this stuff. 
can I ask you, what's your guarantee that you're going to a good place? If you're hoping that you've done enough good stuff in life to make up for the bad stuff, well, then good luck. Because speaking for myself, the scale of my life is tipped towards the bad stuff. In fact, Jesus once told a very religious man in the Bible named Nicodemus, Jewish guy, that he needed to be born again in order to make it to heaven. Now, what does that mean? It means acknowledging that Jesus is Lord, that he died a sacrificial death for your sins, that he was raised from the dead, and that he has prepared a place for you in his eternal kingdom. But it also means repenting of your sin, surrendering to him, putting away your agenda, taking on his And by his spirit, when you do that, you're born again. And he is the center of your life. Um, Because I remember one time in the newsroom, uh, getting ready for one of the casts, you had put one of those tracks in front of me, uh, the little pamphlet that had the two circles, I think it was, and one had the throne of God in the center, and then the other one had me in the center, or something like that, I remember. And you said, what do you see in this, or do you understand this? And I remember clearly, yeah, you know, this is God in the center of somebody's life, and this is the person in somebody in the center of somebody's life. And you said, well, which one are you? And I said, well, I'm the one with me in the center. I just wouldn't give up on John. And it wasn't just John. There were others like, for example, Ken, who was one of our directors. Ken was of the Baha'i faith, and we would have long spiritual discussions late at night, On one particular night, I remember talking to him, and I was getting rather frustrated because he kept going off on this reincarnation thing. And I said, you don't understand. It's appointed a man once to die, and then the judgment. That's what the Bible says. I didn't make it up. That's what the Bible says, I told him. And he said, well, I'm not worried about dying because I'll come back again in another form. And I said, stop, 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 stop. The death I'm talking about is serious. It's permanent. It could be painful. You don't understand that. I was very direct with him. And I remember at that, he just sort of clammed up and didn't say anything. And I realized the conversation was over. So I remember the next day I told John what happened in my conversation with Ken. And he was puzzled to say the least. Months later, John had moved to San Jose, California with his girlfriend, Ursula, and her son, Josh. I was leaving the station one night. It was a Thursday night. Something was placed upon my heart to go back in the building, go across the station to see Ken, the director. Now, I was the last guy to leave the newsroom. Ken is always the last guy to leave the building. It's just the two of us. It's a little before midnight on a Thursday night. I said, Ken, sorry to bother you. Interested in some spiritual conversation. His eyes lit up. I'm sure he thought, finally, Brian's coming over to our side the Baha'i faith side. And I said, Ken, let's talk about eternity. Right away, he goes into the whole reincarnation thing. I said, Ken, here's the deal. I've told you this before. The Bible's very clear on this. It's appointed a man, a woman, one time to die, and then the judgment. And then it's either heaven or it's hell. I want you to be in heaven, Ken. He said, Brian, you don't understand the circle of life we die, we're born again, and it just continues and continues. And he was so happy to tell me this for the umpteenth time. And I stopped him. I said, Ken, please, please, the death I'm talking about here is permanent. It may be very painful. It could take a long time. I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're going to be with me in heaven. 
That was the end of the conversation. He didn't want to hear anything more. The next day, we saw each other in the building. He was the director of the 6 o'clock news, the 11 o'clock news. It's a station with only 40 people, maybe. We saw each other numerous times. He never so much as looked me in the eye. He was so bothered by that conversation the night before, I'm convinced. The next day, Saturday, middle of the afternoon, I get a phone call. Ken had been at a park, Idlewell Park, with his daughter and his wife. He saw someone drowning in the lake. He tried to save the guy who was drowning in the lake, something Ken would do because he was a really nice guy. And in the course of trying to save this man, Ken drowns. I heard that news. I dropped to my knees and I began to immediately think of the conversation from the night before. I've heard that that type of death takes a while. And I have to believe, to this day, I have to believe, I do believe that in those last moments of Ken's life, he had to recall the conversation we had from the night before, two nights before. And I really and truly believe that in that moment, the Lord Jesus revealed himself to Ken and Ken said, okay, I get it, I'm in. After I contemplated that for a bit and there were tears, I gave John a call with the bad news. And you called and asked me if I was sitting down. And I said, no, but I can. And, and you said, yeah, I think you better. And so I sat down and then you told me. You told me that he had drowned. And I was stunned. And the first thing that popped into my mind was the conversation, that last conversation that you had had with him, or one of the last ones when I was still there, mm-hmm. because you had the conversation over a dinner break. And when you came back in, you came back to the storage room where I was working, and you were frustrated. You were just pacing, and, and I asked you what was going on, and then you told me about the conversation and what you had said to him. And I remember at the time thinking, well, that was kind of weird. Mm-hmm. But when you called me in San Jose and told me that he had drowned, um, the first thing that popped into my mind was the conversation you had with him and you telling me what you told him. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to you, Brian, that, that's what you told him. You told him that was going to happen. So what you just heard was a supernatural occurrence born by the Spirit of God. It wasn't me. And I have to believe, as Ken was struggling for his life, he had to recall those conversations I had with him, especially the one from a couple nights before. And I, therefore, won't be surprised if when I get to heaven, I'm going to see Ken, who surrendered his life to Jesus in those last moments. Because the Bible says God's not wishing for anyone to perish without knowing him right even up to the last breath. And obviously, that occurrence was something that registered big time with John. So there is something else I have to tell you that happened when John was preparing to leave Reno for San Jose. On his way out the door, I felt the Lord wanted me to say something. John, I said, I'm going to be praying for you. And John responded by saying, hey, thanks. And then I said, and you know, John, and again, I really felt as if I was prompted by the Lord to say this. I said, I'm praying for you, and I'm praying you will become miserable. Because in your misery, you're going to decide to follow the Lord Jesus. And obviously, John didn't take that so well. How could you blame him? 
John and Ursula didn't spend much time in San Jose, and they soon moved to Los Angeles, where John could attempt to break into the Hollywood writing community. Despite a few breaks here and there, it was really tough, and it was really getting to John, as Ursula recalls. The thing was, is um, John wasn't good at playing Hollywood games, which I look back and I'm very thankful. <laughs> you know, what you see is what you get with John, and and um, and you know, and and I, that's not like he he. It's my way or the highway or or rude or. You know, it, it was just more like, okay, let's just be up front here. And, and what do you think? Is my work good enough? You want to do it? What, what rewrites do you want? But uh, especially on Love Boat, um, there's a game that's played. Uh, yeah, you heard that correctly. The Love Boat. That Love Boat. Exciting and new. Okay, I couldn't resist. Anyway, Ursula continued. But, uh, especially on Love Boat, um, there's a game that's played, and, and you know, um, they mess with your mind and, and kind of, you know, like, want you to kind of, you know, okay, well, yeah, I'll do this. I'll, you know, and, and John just kind of told the guy, okay, you, you, what the guy had suggested. I don't remember exactly what it was. But just said, you know, well, you know, uh, that that uh, something about the, the the script that John had wasn't real enough or something. And John just started laughing and said, <laughs> "Well, then I guess I've got nothing for you. I mean, Love Boat isn't like a a, a realistic program, you know." <laughs> so so he just kind of put his stuff together, and the two guys that got him in to see this head producer. Kind of looking at him like, what are you doing? You're blowing your chance. But, uh. you know, and I remember John driving home. Well, not driving home, but when he got home, and he was pacing us. And he came in, and, and it was like, well, what, what, you know? And he said, I, you know, he told me what he did, you know? And it was like, wow, okay, I guess that one's done, <laughs> you know? But, but, the, but, you know, again, in hindsight, that was perfect. That, yeah. I mean, he... If he had played the game, he wouldn't be where he is now. Right. And, and John never has been a game player. So I'm still back in Reno, and it's a Saturday afternoon, early evening, and I receive a phone call. It's John. He sounds miserable. He's literally so broken up that he's crying on the phone with me. And I said, John, what's going on? And he said, Brian, stop praying for me. I'm miserable. So we had a nice conversation. He calmed down and I said, John, you need to get to a church. I'm going to find a church in your area and I'll get back to you. So the next day, Sunday, I meet with some of my Christian friends and say, where should this guy go? What would you recommend in his portion of Southern California? They gave me the name of a great church. I contacted John with the information. So John and Ursula go to the church. By the time they arrived, all the seats were taken. It was a very popular church at that time. And they had to stand in the back. And at the end of the day, John wasn't really impressed. Nonetheless, the Lord was still ready to offer John another chance. I remember thinking, what's the big deal about this? And, and like, nothing struck me. I didn't, you know, I wasn't moved or anything. I just thought, oh, okay, that was good. And then we left, and then the next week came around. And then I, we woke up, and I said, hey, you want to go back to that, to that church again? Okay. So we did it, and we ended up going like three or four weeks in a row. 
And I started to understand a little bit. And then, um, I guess maybe after five or six weeks, we were there on a Sunday morning, and uh, the pastor wasn't there. He was out of town. His brother was teaching. And um, it somehow just seemed even clearer than before. And it just pierced my heart that I needed to go forward. I needed to say this prayer. I needed whatever it was. I felt that that's what was missing. So I went forward. I said the prayer. I went in the back. I talked to the guy in the back. I told him that I was living with my girlfriend, and he gave me counsel on, on how I should handle that and, and everything. So I made the commitment, but there wasn't any great change um, that, that I felt immediately until the following week and the following couple of weeks. Um, then I, I just, in my heart, I was, it was almost like, uh, you know, someone just turned a light on in the room and I was looking around and realizing all this furniture in the room that I didn't know was there. Huh. And I was just looking and looking and I was understanding. And at that point, then I was broken because immediately all my sin, all my past, all my garbage just came flooding in. And it was like I was overwhelmed with shame. I was overwhelmed with this just sick feeling of myself. It's like I didn't even want to be with myself. And then as quickly, I mean, it lasted. It, I mean, I felt, I felt the, the, the heaviness of that. And I think that God wants us to feel the heaviness of that so we understand what it is we're doing. But before I even could say, Lord, forgive me, I had already done that. But before I could even say it again, it was like it was washed clean. It was like the Lord just sent this big fire hose of water just washing it away. And as quickly as I realized it, is, is that quickly it was gone. And then I began to praise God. I was crying. I began to praise God. And I remember feeling like I was losing my mind, like I was going crazy. And I didn't realize, and this was over that two, two three-week period, um, it was like the Lord was cleansing me out. He was getting everything out of me um, from my past. The Lord was cleaning up the sin from John's past. Finally happened. John was finally born again. But the Lord wasn't done. Ursula works as an interpreter for those who are hearing impaired. And while John was working as this struggling writer in Hollywood, she was the breadwinner while John stayed home watching Josh and working on his scripts. Um, Ursula was interpreting at Cal Poly Pomona. And I was at home with Joshua, and I would start to lose it, and I would just start weeping. He thought I was going crazy. The phone would ring. Ursula would be calling on her break, and Joshua would answer the phone, and I hear him whispering, and he's saying, "Daddy's crying, mommy. Daddy's crying. I I, I don't know what's going on," and that's what was happening, and I didn't understand what was going on. And then one day, after a couple of weeks of this going on, then one day it was like I was like brand new. I woke up and I. I breathed it deeply, and it was like all that garbage was gone. The Lord just squeezed it all out of me, and I was like, okay, Lord, I'm ready. Let's go forward from here. Meantime, Ursula is witnessing all of these major changes in John's life. Now, keep in mind, Ursula was raised in a Protestant church, but she wasn't interested in becoming a born-again type Christian. But while she was happy for John, she was figuring she was no longer the right woman for him 
even though they had, at that time, plans to get married. I have no business being with John. I, I need to leave. And I didn't know how to break this to him. And I was just praying and, and, and crying out to the Lord. And, um, you know, and the Lord just let me know, well, you, you know, you compromised. You put me on the back burner to do what you wanted, to get involved with John when, when you shouldn't have and all these other things. You did that. And now, because he's in, you want to be part of this. No. And I went, oh, boy. You know, so I, I just thought that was it. I had, uh, there was no way that I could have the Lord in my life. And, and so I, I just was real troubled. And, and I know that John kind of looked. He was kind of perplexed at times, but he was just so busy being excited. But he, he, I know that he was wondering why I wasn't as excited as he was. And he didn't know the turmoil that I was going through. But this is why you can never rule out God, because he desires a relationship with all of us. Ursula had decided she was going to go to church with John one last time and then give him the bad news that it was over between them. Little did she know that she was about to receive a tap on the shoulder and another chance from God. So we're at the service. And uh, I think I was sitting on the edge, yeah, on the aisle side. And, um, and, you know, and I thought, well, after service, when we go out to the vehicle, I'll break it to John. And I'll tell him, I can't stay. And so as I was sitting there and they were making the altar call, I felt somebody tap me on the shoulder. And so I looked up, but there was no one there. And then I heard the Lord clearly. He said, Talk about the Lord trying to get someone's attention. Ursula literally felt a tap on her shoulder. You literally felt a physical tap on your shoulder. Yes. Oh, yes. I did. I looked. I thought somebody was wanting to come down our aisle. And and when I looked up, then the Lord spoke to me and said, go on up. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. He's in yeah. the business of doing that. He'll get he'll get our attention any way he can. Oh, he, yeah. And if it's direct, he'll do it direct. I love it. Wow. <laughs> it was very gracious of him. And so then the Lord just said, do you want me or do you not? I was like, I want you. I want you. So I got up. Now, John says I ran. I don't think I would have ran because I would have been conscious of that. But you know what? The further away I am from the incident... Um, from the, the, the experience, maybe I did. I, I know I walked up pretty fast. John and Ursula were both new creations in the Messiah Jesus. Their sins were forgiven, and they were filled with His Spirit. And when they got home, it suddenly dawned on them. They were living together. They were living in sin. Now what? Well, we, we uh, recognized that immediately, both of us. And, um, and so, you know, right away, we were trying to figure out how to do this. You know, we, we knew we couldn't continue what we were doing. And, um, and we were already planning to get married, actually. We already had that in the works. Um, so we separated the best that we knew how, where we were, because we were in Southern California, and we didn't see, you know, we didn't have a, a, a situation where John could go somewhere. And so he stayed in one room, and I stayed in the other. And we had my son. Uh, you know, he was like four at the time, I think. And, um, and so 
that's how we behaved. We just um, we we did not um, we did not sleep in the same room, same bed, or anything like that. You know, we separated. And they remained that way until their wedding a few months later, a beautiful event in which I was honored to have been a part of. But here's the kicker. It was so obvious that God wanted into John and Ursula's lives because he really had an exciting life plan for them. Soon John was on staff as a part of his church's very popular media ministry. And then a few years later, they were contacted by a small church in West Virginia and were asked if they would take over the pastorship at this church. After considerable prayer, they accepted the opportunity and get ready for this. They have been there now for well over 20 years. And don't be fooled by the humble size of this congregation. They really do reach the world with prayer. We're a small fellowship here, and there isn't much that we can offer. But one of the most important things, the most powerful things, I think, that we do offer is prayer. Um, But we've got these two um, email prayer chains, and one of them is local. Well, actually, three of them. One of them is local, uh, having people outside the body that we know and trust in prayer. One of them is with the body alone. And then the other one that you're on is uh, a prayer chain that we have. It extends all the way around the world. There are people in other countries that are part of it. And they are all people that I've asked, are you willing to pray as part of a prayer chain if I send these prayer requests out? Um, You know, they go out around the world, and people are praying. Uh, People respond to me, and I'll just get a simple response saying, praying right now, something like that. And then when I send out the responses, if I get a response to how the situation turned out, Mm -hmm. um, I send that out as well to encourage the people. Thank you for your prayers. This is how this situation ended up. To think that I knew John Fraterola when he was the party-hardy Catholic Italian kid from Philly who had one goal, make it in Hollywood. But when given another chance, God created within him a new goal. Tell others about the love Messiah Jesus has for them. There's no manner of sin that we've committed um, that God will not forgive. The only is... The only one is to blaspheme. If we right out reject him and we refuse to bow our heart to him, that's the only sin. Otherwise, it, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know, the murderer or the, you know, the person that, you know, that, that stole something at the store, um, God will forgive if we will come to him and repent and ask for forgiveness and receive him into our heart. So there, there's no hopeless person, or there should be no hopeless person out there. Everyone can have hope in the Son of God. Wow. John and Ursula Fraterola received another chance from a God whose fountain is filled with an ever-flowing abundance of additional chances. I certainly hope you've enjoyed this edition of Another Chance. For show notes regarding this episode and ways to follow me via social media, just go to briansussman.com. On the next episode of Another Chance, you're going to meet my friend Peter. My wife and I met Peter when he was just a teenager addicted to heroin. He received another chance from the Lord and took it. You'll hear his amazing story Next on Another Chance, I'm Brian Sussman.